Lord, thanks for bringing us together again to hear from your word. Please help us to truly hear you this morning and truly listen so that our lives can be changed. In Jesus' name, amen. So, I'm going to ask for a reaction to a statement. If you think, you can, you can take a second to think about it um, after I say it. If you think this is true from the Bible, raise your hand. If you don't, just keep your hand down. Okay, here's the statement. Apparently, God has no issue with raising us up to his level or lowering himself to our level. True or false? <laughs> wow, okay. I see a couple hands. I see some shrugs. <laughs> I see some blank looks. That's great. Okay. Um, were you going to say something, Bernice? Yep. Yeah, when he became Jesus, so he, de he did lower himself to our level, right? So the question is, does he raise us up to his level? Does he have a problem with that? Um, so the context of that quote, you know that I, have, I do this ministry, and then I also do this online ministry called The Pilgrimage, and there's a Bible study through that group. Um, and somebody's, we were actually reading the story of Moses, and Moses doesn't want to go to Egypt and let the people go. And, or tell Pharaoh to let the people go. And God says, fine, you can take your brother Aaron. And he says to him, he will be your mouth, and you, Moses, will be like God to him, telling him what to say. And that kind of startled everybody in the group. And so we were talking about, it seems like God is actually quite happy to raise us up to his level. It's sort of surprising, but it is actually a biblical idea. It goes along with, we talk about this all the time here actually, but it goes along with our very first theme verse that we had together when I came in January of 2019, which was 2 Corinthians 3.18. It says, And we all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed into his likeness, with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. We're not God. We're not going to be God. But God really wants us to be lifted up to his level, transformed into his likeness. And there are other biblical examples of this, too. Um, in Isaiah, Isaiah prophesies, and he says, Every valley will be lifted up, and every mountain and hill will be made low. In our worship series, we talked about how worship in spirit and in truth is really the desire of God's heart for us to be united with the Trinity. That's kind of mind-blowing. This was God's original intention when he created the world. And we read that passage um, in our responsive reading. God wants to make us in his image so that we may rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky, over the livestock, all the wild animals, over all the creatures that move along the ground. God intended us to have his authority over the rest of creation. And Psalm 8 is another echo of that. Um, King David wrote Psalm 8. It seems to be. It says it in the Bible. So, um, And we're going to do something a little different with today's sermon. Um, I thought that I, I would pick apart Psalm 8 for us. This is sort of a transition sermon between 
the one we just finished and the one that's coming up. Um, but I watched a video from the Bible Project about this psalm, and it was so good, I thought, I can't actually explain this any better than these guys do. Um, they, the Bible Project is a great ministry. They do videos, teaching videos and blogs about different sections of the Bible. Um, and it's very watchable, it's easy to understand, and they also provide all their material free, and so we have permission to stream this. It may affect the Facebook stream. Um, apologies if you're with us online, but we'll, we're going to try to make this work. I hope you enjoy it, and I'll, we'll talk about it some more when they're done. Majestic is your name in all the earth. These are the opening words from Psalm 8 in the Bible. It's a beautiful poem about how the Creator God rules the world through babbling babies. Huh? Babbling babies? Yeah, this is really cool. Let's dive in. Okay, first let's get our bearings. In the collection of literature called the Hebrew Bible, there's a large scroll of poetry called the Psalms. There are 150 poems in the Psalm scroll that have been organized into five sub-collections, sometimes called books. And we're going to be in book one of the Psalms. Right. Now, book one is designed like this. There's a two-poem introduction, followed by four more groups of Psalms. Now, first, let's look at the two-part introduction. It's important because it introduces a key idea for the whole collection of Psalms. It's about God's promise to deal with evil and violence in the world by raising up an anointed king for Israel. So, who is this king? Well, the Hebrew word for anointed is Mashiach, or Messiah. This refers back to a promise that God made to David, the king of Israel. God said that a future Messiah would come from his line, and Psalm 2 says that this powerful king will confront violent world rulers, and he'll become a protective fortress for any who take refuge after the two-part introduction is the next group of psalms, 3 through 14. And our psalm, Psalm 8, is right in the middle. And the fact that it's in the center is important. Let me show you why. First, in Psalms 3 through 7, we're invited to reflect on David's story from the past, when he was powerless and had to hide from his enemies. In these poems, David cries out to God to deliver him and restore him to his role as king. Then after Psalm 8 comes Psalms 9 to 14. David is joined by a group of people called the poor and afflicted ones. Like David, they're oppressed by powerful rulers, and they too cry out to God, asking him to confront these world empires and vindicate his people. Both David and the afflicted ones are really powerless and weak. And yet, they are the ones that God has chosen to rule the world. And this is what Psalm 8, in the center, is all about. It begins by saying, Yahweh our Lord. How majestic is your name in all the land. You have set your splendor above the skies. So Yahweh is the king of creation, and you can see his royal power on display everywhere. Now that first line is repeated again at the end of Psalm 8. Right, that's called an inclusio. It's a signal to the reader of what the poem is all about, God's majestic power that fills all of creation. But David and the afflicted ones aren't experiencing God's power at the moment. Right. This is what the rest of the poem is all about. There are two parallel sections, 
And in the first, we're introduced to a weak little creature, a bunch of babbling babies. From the mouth of infants and nursing babies, you have established a stronghold because of your adversaries to stop the enemy and the avenger. Now, the Hebrew word for stronghold is oz, which can mean strength, or also a strong place, like a fortress or a refuge. God's going to build a fortress out of baby babble to stop violent enemies? Yeah, it's like a riddle that is going to be unpacked by the next matching part of the poem. When I consider your skies, the moon and the stars which you have established, what is human that you remember him, and the son of humanity that you attend to him? So the poet's here reflecting on the creation narrative of Genesis chapter 1, where there's this contrast. God installs the heavenly lights above in all their splendor, and then below he forms the humans out of dirt. Yeah, I get this, looking up at the night sky, feeling so small and insignificant. Why are humans so important to God? And so the poet continues. You made humanity a little lesser than spiritual beings, yet you crown them with glory and majesty. In Genesis, God elevates the weak little dirt creatures for this majestic task, to be his image who will rule over all creation. The poet can hardly believe it. You made them rulers over the work of your hands. You put everything under their feet. So both parts of this poem are about how God loves to elevate the powerless so he can rule the world through them. Whether babbling babies or lowly humans, God loves to choose the weak. Yes, just like David... And like the poor and afflicted ones. And altogether, they set the pattern for that ultimate human, the Messiah of Psalms 1 and 2. And he will rule over all the land. Now, these ideas in Psalm 8 lead us forward to the story of Jesus. In the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 21, Jesus rides into Jerusalem as a king to confront Israel's powerful leaders. But... He's on a donkey, not a war horse. And the people hailing him as their king are the poor and children. So Israel's leaders mock Jesus and then have him executed. But then God raised Jesus from the dead and exalted him as the cosmic king, the true image of God. Then Jesus invited his followers to share in his power and mission, but it's a different kind of power. Yeah, it's like how Jesus said that to be his follower is to become like a child. Yes, when God's people serve others from a place of humility and powerlessness, that's when God's kingdom and power are most on display. O Yahweh, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the land. So, God made powerless little dirt creatures that he wanted to elevate so that he could express his glory through us. This is really the message of the Bible. It's the focus of the Bible. God is great. God is majestic. God is powerful. But his greatness and his power and his majesty he chooses to channel through little things, weak things, things you wouldn't expect. We know the Apostle Paul said when Paul was struggling with some kind of physical limitation of some kind, and he, he said, when I am weak, I glory in my weaknesses because when I am weak, then I am strong. God's power is made 
strong or great through our weaknesses. God's majesty, God's glory is completely not what we would expect. Apparently, God has no issue raising us up to his level or lowering himself to our level. Like Psalm 8 says, when I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what, what is humankind, what are we, what am I, that you are mindful of us, human beings, that you care for us. Here's the thing. The reason why God's way of expressing himself, God's way of exercising power is so opposite of what we would expect is because we think that we have to grab power for ourselves. God has no problem with lifting us up to his level if it's on his terms. God has made us a little lower than the angels and crowned us with glory and honor. God made us rulers over the works of his hands. God put everything under our feet. All flocks and herds and the animals of the wild, the birds in the sky, the fish in the sea, all that swim the paths of the sea. When life is lived on God's terms, we don't have to strive for greatness or power or control. We don't even have to try to impress anybody because God is the one who gives us our value our greatness, our authority, his authority. God is more invested in bringing us up to his level than we are. All of our sin is an attempt to be God on our own terms. All of our sin. But our terms, when we try to be God on our own terms... We end up flipping everything upside down. And so suddenly we have to deceive, or we have to be violent, or we have to betray, or we have to just be completely self-centered. It flips everything around. And Jesus came to bring the kingdom of God, the, Jesus the Messiah, came to bring the kingdom of God back and turn everything back right side up. A lot of times when you hear teaching about the kingdom of God, um, people will nickname it the Upside-Down Kingdom. And they call it that because it seems like the reverse of everything that we would expect. The way that we do kingdom, the way that we do government, the way, even the way that we do churches sometimes, um, it seems backwards. But really, <laughs> the world's way is the upside-down way. It's not the way that God designed things. It's not the, God, the way that God intended things. So we are going to call... God's kingdom, the right side up way. Jesus came to turn everything back right side up. In verse 2, through the praise of children and infants, you have established a stronghold against your enemies to silence the foe and the avenger. The Bible Project guys really pointed out how crazy that sounds, that little babies praising God, somehow that is a defense against the enemy, and the avenger. In the, so we're, we're looking to a coming series. This is going to be a different series than we've done here before. Um, it's going to be a lot longer, but it's going to be broken up into sections. So we're going to be looking through the Gospel of Matthew together. Um, and we're going to, in this series, we're going to talk a lot. We're focusing on Jesus. We're going to talk a lot about the kingdom of God because that is 
kind of Matthew's theme focus in his gospel. So we will talk a lot about the difference between control and authority. They're not the same. We will talk about the difference between empire or the world and God's kingdom, or we'll call it the kingdom. Obviously, there are earthly kingdoms that don't fit into that pattern. But we'll, we'll contrast empire and the kingdom. Empire, the way that we're going to talk about it, wants dominion. They want to dominate. It wants control. It wants power. And it wants respect. But the respect that empire wants is the respect that comes from fear. And so people who live according to the way the world currently works, the upside-down way of the world, try to scrabble their way to the top no matter what it costs, no matter what it takes, even if it costs other people. So um, the, the way of empire uses people and then discards people. Um, and Morning Quiet this week we were reading, I forget which psalm we were reading, which psalm were we reading? 50-something, three, four, something like that. And um, one of our one of the people that comes to that group um, was reading in a different translation, and the way that her translation worded it was something about consuming people like they're fast food. This is what empire does. God's kingdom, though, doesn't need to try to grab power or grab respect because God's kingdom already has authority. God is the authority. And God's kingdom is powered by awe-inspiring love. And the respect that God's kingdom brings comes on the basis of love and gratitude rather than fear. And we can see this even in the stories of Jesus. Um, a couple of the Gospels say something like, "Jesus, the, the people listening to Jesus were surprised because he spoke with authority. Not like the scribes and the Pharisees. That is, not like the religious people who were playing by the rules of the empire, not the kingdom. It is actually really easy for religious people to get sucked into the ways of empire and not realize it because... We have all of the religious term that make terms that makes it sound like we're doing what God wants us to do. God's kingdom flips the empire upside down, but not by using the same um, practices as empire, not by beating it at its own game. It doesn't. There's no violence. There's no deceit. There's no grabbing of control. God's kingdom flips empire upside down by. Empowering the powerless, protecting God's own people from foes and avengers through things like the praise of children and infants. God's kingdom is and always will be something completely different from any system or government or institution or philosophy that this world has ever seen. Sometimes, I do this a lot. Um, especially when you know we're talking about things that are going on in our nation in the last year or two or five, um, and we'll say, well, I don't really agree with that side about this, and I don't really agree with that side about this, so I'm, I think the way to go is the middle. Um, sometimes I hear people say, you know, when I was younger in my faith, 
I used to be really black and white about things, but now I, I see the gray. And there's a place for that, but God's kingdom is not the middle. God's kingdom is not the gray. God's kingdom is not a compromise between two sides, because there aren't actually two sides. It's all empire. There's just different ways of expressing it. God's kingdom is something completely different. God's kingdom is different from empire the way that black and white television is different from color television. It's not the middle of two opposites. It's a completely different thing. Or maybe God's kingdom is different from empire the way black and white television is different from real full-color life. That's the difference. But we live in an era and a place, but really an era, where just like in Jesus' day, the church and the empire have, been, have become kind of enmeshed, and it is really hard to distinguish the difference between the two. Um, and there are lots of historic reasons for this, and we, it, sort, on some level it doesn't really matter. Um, the fact is, just like in the time of Jesus, really well-intentioned people who love God and love people have seen the way that the world does things and said, oh, that looks pretty effective. And so we've, we've taken it in and we've borrowed it and we've put Bible verses on it and it becomes very difficult to pick apart when this is really a kingdom thing and when actually, well, oops, we compromised. And we might not be black or white, but we're gray, and that's still not the kingdom. So it is more important than ever, I believe, in this time that we're living in, it is absolutely essential that followers of Jesus make sure that our first allegiance is to Jesus and his kingdom. His kingdom that is defended by the praise of babies. His kingdom that doesn't grow in a big, flashy explosion, but grows slowly and quietly without people noticing until they turn around and say, oh, that's beautiful. How did that get there? Like a mustard seed or like yeast rising in bread. I feel like Central Baptist Church is a really key place where kingdom could come very powerfully in the loving way of God's power. God is doing something here. It is really clear to me. He is doing something here. In Psalm 8, the least of these, the children and infants in that particular case, which could be us, um, participate in showing the glory of God. Their simple, uncomplicated praise is what shuts down the enemies of the kingdom. Paul and I have been in some churches, some very good churches, um, where one of the key values is excellence. And excellence is important because we need to give God the best. But, just like really anything, <laughs> excellence can be can become an idol. So, this morning, when I messed up the order of service and then Barb just kept going along in the train that I was already on, <laughs> thanks Barb, <laughs> um, that 
is a little stressful because I think in our culture we expect excellence. We would really like our service to go a little more smoothly and we would really like things to, to be a, a little more hip or something. Um, I, I would. But I actually think it was not, it was an accident on our part. But I don't think overall it was an accident that things got a little messed up today because it highlights in our weakness, God is strong. And we need to remember that it's about what God's doing. And God takes surprising things to show us things about himself. This year, God is inviting us into new worship and praise. And we know this because at the beginning of the year, he told me to do a sermon series on worship, even though I wasn't aware that there was anybody that was re feeling ready. I mean, I had been talking about it, but I didn't know that there was anyone ready to start a music ministry, and now we have a music ministry that's starting. God is at work. This music ministry that's beginning could be an avenue of our more freely expressing our love for God and people with pure hearts in worship, and not just worship here, but in worship outwards. That would be the work of God, and I think that's what God is setting up. And there's always a danger that the work of God, we can focus so much on the work that we lose sight of God, and suddenly, oh, we have more musicians, and we have different styles of music, and it suddenly becomes a tool to increase our, our influence or our popularity or power on our own terms. God wants to lift us up to his level. We do not need to do it. We need to just follow Jesus. As God works among us, it's going to be more exciting, but also more important than ever, that we be firmly grounded on the rock, which is Christ. And that his values and his ways become more and more important to us, that they become our own. Apparently God has no issue with raising us up to his level or lowering himself to our level. What better way to encounter the kingdom than to travel along together with Jesus himself? The very God who lowered himself, like Bernice said, to our level by becoming a babbling baby. The Gospel of Matthew is written in precisely the vein that Psalm 8 is written in. And it was interesting that the Bible Project guys actually quoted something from Matthew in their talk about Psalm 8. God overturns everybody's expectations. God lifts up the children and the poor and the weak to his level to build his kingdom. That's kind of us. It's okay that that's us. God wants to build his kingdom through us. God's kingdom silences and overthrows those who try to grab or keep power for themselves and gives victory and vindication to his people through not great explosive popularity, but through opposition, suffering, and what looks like defeat. So this sermon series, I hope, is going to be more than a tour. I really like David Bertrand's tour guide analogy. Um, so I'm going to put that there. Uh, and we are going to take a tour over the next number of months of the life of Jesus as depicted in this Gospel of Matthew. 
we're going to break it down a little. Um, Matthew is actually kind of written in segments. And so it's going to be like a big series made up of smaller, more normal length series. Um, but the whole gospel of Matthew is a book of stories about Jesus and teachings from Jesus. We are going to focus on the stories in particular. This is where we connect, where our lives connect with Jesus. We're, this is actually where we connect with the Bible. Most of the Bible is story, and the reason for that is we live stories. We don't live lists. Some of us may do well with lists. Some of us may wish we were better with lists. Uh, but, but we live stories, and that's how we connect. So we're going to focus on those. This is where God meets us comes down to our level to lift us up to his. But we are also going to look at some of the overall bigger themes of Jesus' teachings. So over the rest of this year, this is probably going to take us up to Advent. Um, and this is even a little upside down because we just had Easter, right? And now we're going to talk about, next week we're going to talk about Christmas. And then by the time we get to the end, we will talk about Easter again. And then it'll be time to talk about Christmas. <laughs> but I don't think that's an accident either. Um, so we're going we're gonna to imagine that we're with Jesus and his disciples. We're in the crowds. We're following. We're listening. We're watching him. We're seeing what he does. As we do this, allow yourself to be surprised by what he does and says, just like his first followers were. It's hard for us to be surprised by Jesus sometimes, I think, because we are so familiar with the stories. We just kind of breeze past them. And... If we kind of put ourselves there and listen with really open ears, try to catch the details, try to notice what might have been seemed surprising in his time period, we might discover that what we thought we understood about particular passages isn't maybe isn't wrong, but is a little different, both better and maybe more challenging than we knew. And also, this is going to be, I hope, a little different, a little better than a tour. The good thing about a tour, if you, if you hire a tour guide and you have this person take you around the place that you're visiting and give you information, you are going to get to know a whole lot more about that place than you would if you were just wandering around by yourself. And you'll know more about the people, and you'll get um, a little bit deeper into what goes on in that country or that culture. But the limiting thing about a tour is, at the end, you pack up and go home, right? You don't stay there. It might influence some things for a little while. When you come back home, you might try some new food at dinner time, or you might, um, when I came back from my mission trip to India, I insisted to my mother that I was going to eat everything with my hands for a while. Um, that didn't go over. I don't think that lasted more than one meal. But <laughs> um, my prayer is that at the end of this tour, you and I and our whole church will be changed. Not because Barb and I are such good tour guides through our little sermons, or because, but because Jesus is a good God. And we have met him in these pages, and we decided we didn't just want to tour and then go home to where we came from, but we want to make our home with him, wherever he leads us. 
And we decided, if we haven't already, to shift our citizenship from the world's empires to the kingdom of heaven. And the prayers of our hearts echo what Jesus taught his disciples to pray in Matthew 6 and what Jesus lived himself. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Let's pray. Lord, we do want your kingdom to come. Um, this is a big task that you have for us to engage your story in depth in a new way. We ask that you will help us to be faithful to follow you in this, that you will open up our minds and our hearts so that we will hear really, truly from you directly, and that our lives will be changed, and that as our lives are changed, your glory is expressed not only through the babbling of babies, but through your kingdom coming and your will being done on earth and in Southbridge and in Central Baptist as it is in heaven. In Jesus' name, 